the definition that one uses for oneself has a huge impact on the way that one sees oneself. I define myself not by a profession. I define myself by my governing principles. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organisations and communities. Coffee Potters, we have a sensational guest for you today. Joining us on the program is Dr Tia Kansara. Now, Tia is a sustainability expert who hates the term sustainability. She completed her PhD at University College in London on the theme of sustainable cities and is a really amazing entrepreneur and thought leader on the topics of ecosystems and development. Tia is an advisor to governments, companies and individuals, and she's the thought leader behind this concept called Replenish, which is a new way of evaluating our economy that transcends the simple GDP per capita. She's got a best-selling book by the same name, Replenish, and she's travelled more than 80 countries sharing the World Replenish Index and has actually created a Replenish business canvas at the MIT Media Labs. She's got six incredibly popular TED Talks, and as you'll get a sense of in our conversation, she's got plenty of ideas and really interesting points for reflection in thinking about uh, how we live and the way that we need to develop a greater consciousness and intentionality around that. I really think you'll enjoy this chat. Here's Tia. Before we kick off with with talking about the work that you're doing now, I'd love to give context and, and also to understand myself as well. I know we've spoken a bit about it, but where did your passion for this work start and, and maybe as well the insight for the sort of way that you've interpreted your work and taken it into the space that you're in now? Because it's quite different to the way a lot of people who might have just said, oh, I'm, I'm passionate about the environment or sustainability in kind of a, a broad sweeping statement sense would have chosen to step into and pursue the line of inquiry that you're on. So I'd love to know the start of the passion and the insight that prompted the work you're doing now. Yeah, I think it's the relationship with the outdoors that has been a quest. But by having spent that much time with nature, I feel as if I feel more normal there. And it makes me question what the built environment is for. So when I look at my interest in the environment, ecosystems and cities and how they're designed, it's much more of a psychological, almost anthropological study that I'm interested in. And so there's this meta discourse that I'm having most probably with myself which is why are we here? What kind of environments have we created? And is it all really just imagined? And to what extent have we as humanity taken that further? So that sort of, it's much more of an intellectual interest that has then mixed with my curiosity for how best I explore that or how best I focus on that, whether it's academic work or you know, a practice or is it something that I should make with my hands? And those two have basically led me to understand what my passions are and 
there are many yet to discover. It's not as if I'm like, yes, I know exactly what I'm doing. I just think that the method to find that has really been a discourse rather than I'm interested in something. I love that. In an age where we like to have everyone in a neatly defined title and uh, and descriptor, I'd actually be interested to hear you say what you define yourself as and what you define yourself as, as not being, so to speak. Because I know that you actually have a real reluctance to use some of the terms that have almost become the, the new buzzwords of the space that you're in. Right. Like, I'm a sustainable advisor. Exactly. Um, I think I've had an aversion for these terms because of a wonderful quote that I heard when I was much younger, and that was, why reduce your future potential? I've no hmm. idea what I'm going to be in 10 years' time. Actually, I am not what I was 10 years ago. So I'm only assuming that as I grow and evolve, my interests will change, my passions will change, the people inside my life will change. And so this change is a constant in my life. It's just the rate of change that's different from one person to the other. But change is inevitable. But I think what's curious to me is that the definition that one uses for oneself has a huge impact on the way that one sees oneself. So if I call myself one particular word, I live by that or I don't live by that, but it's an association. It's like I am, let's say, a lawyer and I see myself as legal counsel for a very specific thing, which means I'm narrowing myself to that specific role. But I've never been like that. I define myself not by a profession. I define myself by my governing principles. These are my core values. These are, for want of a better word, my religion. This is like my mission statement. This is who I am. Yeah. I love that. And do you know one of the things I, I think is fascinating about you, and I'd be really interested in how you've navigated for yourself, yeah. is um, really stepping out after your passion and creating a, a vocation around it. And I think for a lot of people who are looking at the world, and I say this kind of coming from our generation, we go, you know what, I'm pretty convinced that a lot of the institutions and the way the world is has to change. You know, we need to take it in a new direction. We need to be prepared to depart from the status quo. But that's hard to know at the best of times how to set that up, how it is that you sell a story that's different from the convention of how things are because people don't know how to interpret you. I'm really interested for how you took the steps that you, you've taken into your in, really charting your own path. Mm. So Holly, this is the thing, right? If you go to school, you're at university, let's say, I read economics at SOAS, I completed my degree, I thought I'd go into banking, that was really just so that I could earn some money and it was going to be a job. Fortunately for me, I went to, I wanted to go to Japan straight after university, so I did. I taught English for like two years. And then my plan was to come back to England and get a job. This is 2007. I'm looking for work. I end up in a research project in Qatar. And it sort of extends. And then I come back to England looking for a job again. I have this mentality of, I need to find a job. I need to find a job. But actually, what happened along the way was, actually, why do I need a job? I know exactly what it is that I want to explore. Why can't I go and do that? And the first thing that I thought about was, well, how am I going to financially sustain myself during that process? And so I took on these short-term projects or short-term roles and then started to come across a lot of other people that were living very differently from a nine-to-five job. And I think what happened was to give yourself the freedom to reimagine yourself is the biggest gift that you can give to yourself because 
to assume that you fit into a mold is one thing, but to think that, you know what, I'm going to go on an internal exploration just as much as I may do, you know, find a job, try different things. You know, how am I going to know unless if I do this subject mentality, which is trial and error. But I think I just went in and I wanted to know how I could pursue something without having to follow a norm because the norm is not me. Mm. Um, I've never seen myself as just a normal person. And the norm is an average. And the average is based on the midpoint of a given set of people and everything has been averaged out and nothing has ever actually been pushed to the absolute extreme. So if we ever knew what the highest grade was in a given course and said, this is the highest grade anyone has ever got. Instead of, do you know what? All you need is 50% to pass. Well, yeah. then you. So that sort of you know, averaging out and reducing the potential value of something has really bugged me. I hope that answers your question. I think there is quite a lot that people assume is a given. Like you go to university. Why do you go to university? You know, you go and do three years on a course that you don't actually even know anything about. You know, economics, I had no idea about the demands and supply curve before I went to university and read economics. I'm not saying that one option is right or wrong. I think it's important to have this chance, to have this opportunity to dig deep and understand what is it that I want to do and how am I going to do it? So why do I want to do this? And how am I going to explore different ways of doing it? And you'll come across things that you really, really enjoy. And it's really just, um, it's an opportunity to not be assigned, but to deduce from your own experience what it is that you love doing. How difficult or, or otherwise have you found marching to the beat of your own drum? Have you found there to be resistance? Are there things that you've done to, I guess, support yourself or, or improve the way that you might be? And people might have been open to the alternative opinion or the ideas that you're putting forward. I think like in 2007 and eight, when I was going back to the UK and I thought about getting a job in, in a bank, credit crisis hit, nobody wanted to hire anybody. It really wasn't an option to go into banking. So then I thought, well, what do I do? And I applied at Sotheby's, which is kind of like an auction house and an art, probably one of the oldest houses for auctioning art. And they just didn't get me. They really just didn't get me. They didn't understand who I was. In the interview, I remember at the end of an interview, I was called a, a racehorse. I just didn't really know what that meant. I'm assuming you needed a racehorse to sell the art that you're hoping to sell, but maybe we're just on two different pages here. <laughs> and I thought that it was, and I remember going home, I was in front of my older sister and my mom, and I was in tears. I just didn't know what it was that I was supposed to be doing. And, you know, I just didn't understand why I, yeah, I just wasn't getting this job that, you know, is going to help me pay for my student loan, etc. And I think that was the moment that was a turning point for me because I thought, well, you know what, if you don't want me because you think I'm a racehorse, bugger off. I'm going to go and do something that I want to do. And of course, there are some definitions and disciplines that have names and others that don't. And I think, you know, many of the 4.0 technologies that are coming out with blockchain and AI and various others, it's impossible to know what the jobs of the future are going to be. Actually, are there going to be jobs of the future? Lots of big discussions that are happening there of whether we're even going to be needed to do the types of things that we've only ever known to have done. But I think there's this nostalgia of 
this is the way that it should be without the acceptance of the rate of change that this technology is coming in. So there is this sort of putting your heels into the ground and saying, "Mm -mm, not going to allow it because I don't think this is right. You know, all these people are going to lose their jobs. A lot of your work is advising policymakers, companies and individuals on how to adapt to climate change, build smarter cities and embrace local and global wisdom and expertise as well. I wanted to ask you, when you look at at the macro discourse, what do you think we're talking about too much, we're almost overly preoccupied with, and what do you think we're not talking about enough? I don't think we're talking about what it means for humanity. I think we're quite conscious of of what it's happening and what it's doing on a a local level. Like, oh, we've got two weeks of snow and we weren't expecting it in New York and there's a storm and it's put us out and now global fleet has to consider taking DHL posted services via another route. Um, Yeah, that conversation's happening. What to do about these, basically the the resilience that is required for just earth changing. But I don't think we know what that means for us. And I don't think that conversation about what does this step require on a global level. So something that I call the, it's like a community actualization. So Maisley talks about the individual, but we're not really individuals because if we were, we wouldn't need anything else to survive. And it's really tough to say that you're an individual. If it's it's tough to, to know where the event began and ended. And if it did, have this start date and end date. Of course, that is a life. But did you begin when your mother gave birth to you? Did you begin when the mother was born? Did you begin when... And so it just sort of continues on. But I digress. The point is that if you're going to actualize yourself, that's an individual person, let's say, individual for the ease of this example. But what happens when you actualize a community of people? What happens when you can actually see the patterns of the meta-discourse that's happening about belonging and identity that allows people to go deeper into who am I and why are we here together? Not why am I here, why are we here together? And I think that's a conversation that's really tough to have because on some level, a lot of that belonging is defined by geographic location or religion or race or perhaps even gender or age or stage of life or career. But there seems to be this huge like, elephant in the room, which nobody is noticing. And it's sitting there cross-legged thinking, you know, hi, it's me. Do you think we're not noticing that because like, there's almost a lack of awareness or consciousness about it? Or do you think it's because we don't know what to do with it if we acknowledge it? I think we don't know what to do with it. I think we also don't know how to have this conversation, not only with ourselves, but also with others. Now, the concept you developed, the Replenish Economy, is founded on the principles of the World Replenish Index. And what I want to unpack, I guess, and get you to share with people for those who might not have come across it, is this idea of a marketplace that transcends and includes GDP right the way through to 100% compostable products, conscious of our environmental impact. It's a different way, I guess, of benchmarking country performance, really, from, from my understanding of things. Tell us about the conversation that you're driving with Replenish and what it is that uh, you're trying to see change as a consequence of that conversation. Yeah, I really just want to change my life. That's what I want to do. But in doing that, I'm learning so much about how other people can also live their lives that could be different and maybe positive to the environment. And I feel that, you know, every day I wake up and I go to the fridge and I open up the fridge and I go and take some food out. I want to know where it came from. I also want to make sure that there aren't heavy metals in it, 
there are no plastics or microplastics in my food. And so those decisions, as I'm becoming much more intelligent about food and its impact on my health and my well-being, my mindset, and you know, my stress levels, for example, all of these psychological sort of impacts from my environment and how they're nurturing me have become important to me. So Replenish really began because I wanted to understand what the underlying philosophy was of the economy. We have the environment, we're having a negative impact of the way that we're living. Let's say we're not going to blame anything or not going to create any kind of guilt. But well, where did it all go wrong? And I feel that living in harmony with, with nature is sort of the principle. It's like the Hindus say, ahimsa paramodharm, which in Sanskrit is nonviolence is the first form of the way of our life. And I, I thought, well, what is the way of life that could actually, like a lifestyle or the way that we practice our exchanges and transactions and things in the economy that could really be rooted in a philosophy that would be beneficial for the environment. And that's where Replenish came about. And Replenish Earth is really about understanding that philosophy in the context of an economy or a business or a government policy. And I think having this as an anchor allows us to have a conversation where it's not about, hey, I'm going to start my startup. I've got like a business canvas, I'm going to make loads of money. Here's a product we're going to sell. But it's like, wait, wait, if you were to start a business right now and it didn't make any money, would you start it? No, you wouldn't because there's no business model there. But if at the same time there was a business that would make money but was negative for the environment, would you do that? My suggestion is no, because in five years' time, you're probably going to be completely out of the job because there will be regulations in place. There already are stringent regulations in place for Clean Air Act and the amount of pollution that's coming out, the materials that you're using, etc. So how can we get to a point where, mindfully, wherever we are right now from a fossil fuel economy that we've, we've generated and imagined for ourselves, how can we make that transition to what I call a replenished ecosystem? It doesn't need to be an economy. It is just an eco. It's an ecosystem. And what I love about the forest or an environment where I take my inspiration is that it has its own way of doing things. It flows in and out. There's no sort of waste. And I think this idea, I don't know who came up with a trash can or a rubbish bin or a dustbin. Like, I don't know who did it, but that was the worst invention ever because the, the thought of displacing your responsibility to somebody else was probably the most stupid thing that we as humanity have ever created and continued. And every time we use a trash can, we're basically reinforcing it. So I have issues with this. I have trauma, Holly. I <laughs> didn't hear it. Ah. And so Replenish sort of began with this philosophy and then evolved into, okay, so where in a more practical level, where is there an opportunity that we can make these shifts? And are we really using this as a mode of success? Like, is this the kind of the best thing that we could do is like how we rate our GDP across the world? And there are obviously multiple ways of accounting for GDP. But if you were to adjust it for the environment and the externality of the environment was included in the cost, what would that look like on GDP? So if it was, say, let's just call it GDPE or what I call World Replenish Index, then all of a sudden it would be adjusted to the positive impact that you have on nature. So at the back of the product, instead of reading your calories, of course, you'd see them there. You'd also have a replenish factor. You'd see this product is replenishable by certain standards. Not the CO2 footprint is X, Y, Z. You're a miserable human. But hey, look, you're doing something positive. You're encouraging this method of ecosystem services. 
So now you're capturing the environmental impact within your own purchase behavior. And that sort of investment is something that I mentioned quite a bit in my TEDx talks is, and also my book, is that when we get to a point where we appreciate that we have the permission to put our money exactly where we want it, that's when life becomes a game changer, I think. If there are millions of people who are saying, you know what, no, I don't feel like putting my money there. You did what? No, 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 no. That practice is not good for me. That kind of toxic? No, sorry. That dust in, that plastic? No, just not my thing. Thank you, though. And then off you go. And I think that ecosystem that is then, whether it evolves into an economy, whether it evolves in business and how we innovate products and services, for me, it really does penetrate into everything. It's like, how do I live my life? Like every single day, what do I purchase? And where am I reinforcing certain things, certain investments, certain companies? Who am I encouraging? I'm interested to ask you how much momentum you feel like we're getting behind this, behind alternative ways of, of benchmarking performance and thinking about impact. I know he's not the first person to come out and say it, but I did feel that the BlackRock chairman's letter to shareholders this year, Larry Fink, saying we need to be thinking about social licence to operate. You absolutely need to be considering a broader set of impact criteria and ways of evaluating performance beyond merely just the shareholder returns. Did you feel that that's sort of a sign that we're seeing more leaders start to get it? How how successfully do you think this is gathering momentum? I think, you know, on a, maybe the last 10, 11 years that I've been specifically in this field, I feel that there has been just huge momentum. Part of it is fashionable, right? It's fashionable to say that you've got a CSR department, let's say, for some companies, and others are taking it quite seriously and literally have changed everything in their business to align whether it is a circular economy or whether it's cradle-to-cradle thinking or whatever. The point being that there is a top-down pressure and then there is a bottom-up pressure. The bottom-up pressure is either through communities or families or people saying, hey, look, I'm actually going to be a weekday vegetarian so I can reduce my CO2 footprint from eating meat, let's say, sort of lifestyle shifts and changes that are occurring. Others that are saying, hey, look, you know, I'm going to sequester all of my carbon. Now, there are tools that can actually measure your carbon sequestration and, and methods that you can actually purchase carbon credits and things like that. So none of this existed 15, 20 years ago. None of this existed. And I feel that, you know, when you get the sort of more top down, whether it is governance or whether it is, it's, it's that comes back to the politicians being able to even have that conversation, because if they can't have that conversation, how are the people who are listening to them also going to appreciate and understand that this might be an important thing. It's like your parent not telling you anything about crimes and then all of a sudden you grow up and you go outside and you're like horrified that this <laughs> even existed. Nobody told you about it, didn't know what to do. It's like, you know, why did you not tell me? Did you think it wasn't important for me to know? So there's part the, the responsibility on the self to go out there and to know about the impacts that one has on the environment. But I think also what's happening is it's like word of mouth. Oh, my God, Black Mirror's come out. Have you seen it? No. It's really cool. Now, you should actually watch it, Holly. You'd really, really enjoy it. And then all of a sudden, Holly's watched it. Holly's five friends have watched it. The five friends of Holly's friends have watched it. And then it sort of spreads. And I think this natural progression of information to the hands and, you know, whatever methods we want to use is still employed. I think people, if they knew about it, would either be horrified or they think, well, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. 
I did not know that this was the practice for this. I did not know that, you know, like in Rachel Carson's book, The Silent Spring, one day we're going to wake up and spring is going to be dead. You know, nothing is going to grow. Nothing's going to wake up from hibernation. So maybe that's kind of where we are. But I do feel that we're speeding up because we have no other choice. You know, if you look at many of the, the kind of climatic issues, we're experiencing a lot of different changes. Now, whether we say that they're anthropogenic or not, or whether the scientists know that this is definitely because, you know, this factory put this much sodium into the environment, who knows? But I personally, I don't need to know that. I just know that the environment is shifting and changing. I can feel it. It's snowing. And it's April in England. Mm. That doesn't normally happen. It's not normal. So I know that there is an abnormal issue that we're experiencing. And I want to do something that can ensure some kind of longevity, some kind of continuation of not just me, but for others as well, in a way that feels natural to the environment. So, yes, there is a lot of movement. There's also a lot of inertia. It's like, well, what is climate change? Isn't that just a load of tosh? There's also all of these reports coming out from companies that have paid a hell of a lot of money to academics who have done the research on their behalf, biased with the information, taking the results out and showing, no, nothing wrong. What climate change? So I think we just have to be, I think we have to have our wits about us. And I think we need to learn the art of rigor in our finding of resources, validating the references and and really having our own opinion on something rather than just listening and, and regurgitating, but listening, observing, having your own opinions and interpreting that information in a manner that allows you to at least have an informed mindset on a given topic. These days, there's like a billion opinions that people can have, but there's also a billion disciplines that people can actually think about. So when you're making decisions, which do you favor? Are you going to spend 20 minutes of your time reading on politics? Are you going to spend 20 minutes of your time, your spare 20 minutes reading about the environment? And you've got to make that choice. So for those people who are listening to some of the things you're saying today and it's lighting them up, you know, be it the first time that they've really resonated and connected with these ideas or be it a reminder around things that they may not have felt as empowered around but certainly have a latent kind of passion for, what's your best bit of advice for how they can get involved and start contributing to these conversations and to the sort of change that you're talking about themselves? Yeah, I think one thing is just to ask questions. And it comes back to that curiosity. It's like, get into your body. I think we're so into our heads. I think we're so analytical that the intuition has just gone missing. It's like, where is your gut instinct and feeling and instinct? And that is a place, that is a conversation. That is the feeling of being a human being, being a nature being. For so long, I think, we've just got this, it's almost like we're already cyborgs because we don't see ourselves as nature. It's like, no, 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 I'm not nature. What do you mean? But you're 100% nature, and everything that surrounds us comes from nature. So it's not as if we're not in nature. We are. We've designed it in a particular manner, perhaps. It doesn't mean that it has to remain like that. But really start asking questions, because I think that curiosity that you will develop in this field will be appropriate to wherever it is that you are in your life. No one can dictate that you should be at this point right now. No, I think we're all on our own exploration and appreciation, heart opening and connecting with other people who are also going through something quite similar to you. So if you've never heard about this before and you're like, wow, this is so interesting, read my book. And then you'll see all these different aspects of like replenish. But 
you know, also ask questions about how does this apply to you? You know, maybe you're a taxi driver. Perhaps you're the person who's going to lose that job. Perhaps you're the person who in 50 years time or 20 or five years time or two months time are going to have to ask questions of whether this, this lifestyle that you're leading is appropriate or not. If there is going to be dramatic shifts and changes that we're foreseeing, which we are, then what can you do to help yourself, to help the future you? Yeah, to help the future you. And the final question I wanted to ask you on that, and really for the podcast as well, is that the call to action that you'd love to leave people that are listening with. Yeah, just so easily, if you were to look at how much waste you create, because it's so tangible, right? It's so obvious. If you could look at that amount of waste and keep it in your room for a week, how long would you survive with that? How long would you be able to keep living with your own waste? And if we can be just aware of how much waste we're creating, we will naturally reduce it. Because you'll think, mom, so much plastic. What do I do with this? Can't recycle it. If you could start recycling it, where would you put it? Where would you make sure that you reduce the amount of organic waste that you were creating? Perhaps you could compost it in a manner or whatever it is. So just allow yourself the opportunity to see waste. Because I think this, in the short term, is one of our biggest issues. So definitely reduce your actual waste at home. I think there are many people that obviously recycle pretty much everything. And there are many people who've completely reduced everything that they buy. It's like we're on this massive shopping spree to buy everything of everything and to have a copy of everything. And then all of a sudden we die. And then it's like, well, somebody else has to look after what you decided that you were going to buy for the whole of your life. And I find that a bit of a strange thing, but one for another conversation perhaps. And to you, for those who want to connect, learn more, where can they reach out and connect in with more of what you're doing and what you're about? I'm on all social media with at Tia Kansara, uh, but definitely if they're interested and, and if you're interested, check out my books. I've got YouTube, I've got TEDx, talk, I think I've got about six TEDx talks. And the most recent one that I've launched is Who Owns My Data?, and the most recent book that I'm launching is a book on the blockchain because I feel that these sort of ecosystems are coming together where it's the environment, physical and economic platforms are sort of converging. And the data that we take from those and what is done with them, and I think also with Cambridge Analytica and big discussion about Facebook, mm. is where are we actually hoping that that information can be used? And if you had a choice, how would you manage that choice? So I think there's a lot of responsibility on our part to join the conversation and to update ourselves on what's happening. So, yeah. Brilliant. Tia Kansara, I can't thank you enough for making the time to have a chat to us today. I'm absolutely fired up. I'm looking at this giant page of notes I've written down in front of me with lines that really resonated from what you shared with me. And I think a brilliant call to action as well to just bring it back to that the personal way that you're interacting with your environment, creating a greater level of consciousness around the way that you consume, around the way that that you live and doing what you can at an individual level, let alone before we start thinking about the collective and the global. So thank you so much for your insights and for the wonderful work you're doing globally. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback by tweeting me at Holly Ransom or leave a review for the podcast. 
To cater to coffee length breaks, we've reduced the length of this podcast, but you can listen to this conversation in full and sign up to receive our free fortnightly updates packed with info and ideas by visiting www.coffeepodswithholly.com. So for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.